0: Well good evening everyone, my name is Beth and we'll be reading together from Job chapter 42 verses 7 to 17. Please read with me in your Bibles or follow on the screen. Okay, Job chapter 42 verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karenhapuk. Nowhere in all the land were they found women as beautiful as Job's daughters and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man and full of years.
1: Thanks for that reading, Beth. Good evening, everyone. It's great to have you here, especially if you are visiting uh, for the special event later in the service. Uh, As you've been told, tonight we've come to their final sermon in the series of the Book of Job. Uh, And for some people, that's super exciting. Uh, For others, it's really disappointing that we can't spend more time in this great book. Um, Just one other uh, little bit of good news, Um, Amy Boulton gave birth to... I've got it written down, Pearl, yesterday morning. Uh, And for those of you who know, she's had quite a tricky pregnancy and so it's a real uh, great praise point um, that Pearl was delivered safely yesterday morning. Now last week we read about how God turned up in a storm and confronted Job with his extravagant creation, a complex, even mysterious creation that is completely under God's control at all times. While it didn't directly answer any of Job's questions, It was the basis to God's challenge to Job, that could Job do a better job of running the universe than God was already doing? Two scary, powerful, intimidating creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan, were discussed in detail, which may be hippopotamus and crocodile, extinct dinosaurs, or probably more likely symbols of chaos and Satan as their experience from our perspective down here on Earth. The four chapters of God's speeches are a magnificent description of God's uh, unique ability to create and to control, even things that are chaotic and dangerous. But in some people's opinion, it leaves Job's questions and the questions of why he suffered completely unanswered. Perhaps their doubt indicates that they haven't given full weight to God's argument Job himself seems to be in no doubt that God is God and that ruling and and controlling, dispensing justice should be left completely up to God, not to us. Tonight we come to what is often called the epilogue, the bookend that finalises, that finishes off the story and puts a close to it. It is the shortest passage that we've studied over the seven weeks, but don't let its shortness fool you into thinking that it's easy. Uh, There are lots of things that are tricky to understand and even harder to actually put into practice. So let's pray again, uh, asking for God's enabling as we come to this final section. Lord God, we thank you for the book of Job. We thank you for the things over the last seven weeks that we've learnt about you, uh, learnt about ourselves, learnt about how we should interact with others. And as we come to this final section, uh, it is short uh, and there's lots of good stuff in it. Uh, especially in comparison to the hard things that we've worked our way through, the debates, the, the darkness. Uh, but we really want to understand it and we recognise that without your enabling, uh, we're completely uh, unable to actually understand what's going on here. So please by your Holy Spirit, work in us now. Enable us not only to understand what's being said, but even more importantly, that that by your Spirit, you would actually enable us to put into practice the things that you are showing us here now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And they all lived happily ever after. The moment we hear the words, we know that what we've just read, watched or listened to is a fairy tale and that we have come to the end. All the tension is resolved, all the worry that things might not work out is gone. The world is as it should be. But while it feels good, it's often at this moment that our cynical side kicks in and says, actually, this is too good, way too good to be true. Real life doesn't work out like this. And so movies like Pay It Forward or Dead Poet Society, plays like Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, have intentionally sad endings. Tragedies seem so much true to life as many of us experience it. Now, while the exact words happily ever after are not used in Job 42, when we get to this finale after such a gloomy, depressing story, it is understandable why some people see it as a cliché happy ending. At first glance, it does seem really strange that after so strongly rejecting the idea that God simply blesses good people and punishes bad people, that suddenly Job does get back everything and more. Perhaps even worse, the end could be interpreted as confirmation that the Satan's original accusation of Job is true, that Job only serves God because God gives Job so much. Does the book of Job teach us that if we just persevere long enough and accept whatever God or Satan throws at us, that in the end we will get blessed? If not, what does the ending of the book of Job teach us? We're going to try to answer that by looking at three points. God's judgment in verses 7 to 9, Job's restoration in verses 10 to 11, and then finally, God's blessing in verses 12 to the end, verse 17. So, what does the ending of the book of Job teach us? Well, firstly, it presents us with God's judgment. As we've read through the book, we've seen that Job, the three friends, and Elihu have all shared their opinions about how God judges. Now, we as the audience get to see God firsthand in the act of actually judging. And the first thing to notice is God's self-description as angry. Verse 7, I'm angry with you and your two friends. During the debate, Job clearly got angry with his friends. The friends, the three friends, got just as mad in return with Job. Elihu's frustration at both the friends and at Job bubbled over into lots of anger. He was called angry four times in the first couple of verses of his speech. Yet when finally God appeared to Job and spoke to him, while his questions certainly put Job in his place, God never directly says that he is angry with Job. And so I think we are expected to notice that and be moved by God's anger here. Look again at verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, He said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Notice that God repeats the exact same words at the end of verse 8. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. God's not a little put out or, or, or mildly disappointed that the three friends haven't been able to express their thoughts quite right. He's mad because they have not spoken the truth about him. Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar were supremely confident that they knew exactly what God was doing, what was happening to Job and more importantly why it was happening to Job. But in their presumption, they are actually incredibly wrong which makes our initial response one of, yeah, about time. On a number of occasions, we've been horrified at the unjustified accusations the friends have made about Job and his kids, and so are glad that God has finally backed up Job by calling out their nastiness. But I think what's most surprising is the contrast that God goes on then to make. While Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar have not spoken the truth about God, Job has, which I think raises even more questions than it answers. Hang on, God, you've just said to Job, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? You yourself have suggested that Job has discredited your justice, condemning you to justify himself. How's that, speaking the truth about you? See, we're comfortable with the condemnation of the three friends, because we agree that they got a lot of things wrong. But not everything that Job has said is true either. So what does God mean that Job has spoken of God what is right? Now, I don't think it can be as simple. The book of Job's just not like that, to, to suggest that Job just gets a higher percentage correct than the three friends do. He's 80%, they're only 60 Now, now one suggestion that has merit is that Job's motivation was better than the three friends' motivation that rather than dutifully quoting accepted theories, Job alone wrestles with complicated realities. He goes past the theory to deal with what's actually going on. Now, according to this thinking, their friends are detached experts, theologians in their ivory towers, while Job is the lone, sincere seeker. And while there is possibly some truth in this, we need to be very careful to recognise that sincerity is not all that matters to God. As we see in the case of Job's friends, people can be sincerely wrong. In the end, we actually contradict the Bible if we assume that they are called out merely for being detached or disinterested. All three are in fact observed to be extremely passionate and it is in their passion that they say things about God that are not true. And that is what they're judged for, which I believe is a very strong warning to us to not be too quick to apply our theology too rigidly or without compassion. At times, we should have found ourselves nodding along with what Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar said. And so God's words here should make us reevaluate what we believe and we say to others about God. Have we, with our words, made God's justice harsher than it actually is? Has our right observations about one aspect of God's choosing us blinded us to other truths about how we also need to accept his invitation? Do we assume that we understand everything, that we have the whole picture, when wisdom actually tells us that we're incapable of knowing every relevant fact? Now, to receive this critique as we're supposed to, doesn't demand or, I would say, even allow for us to plead ignorance about every issue as if the Bible is unclear about every single topic that there is. But are we certain that the things that we hold as unquestionable are the things that God has revealed as unquestionable? If our theology isn't leading to charity and patience with others, perhaps the warning bells are already ringing And it's just that we've missed them or ignored them altogether. Now, another suggestion as to how Job has spoken what is right in comparison to the friends is to highlight Job's seeking after God. And I think that there's even more evidence in favour of this suggestion. As we've commented a number of times throughout the series, while Job asks hard questions and states questionable conclusions, he never doubts God's existence or control of all things. And in Job's case, that understanding leads to his longing for his relationship with God to be back how it was in the beginning. In contrast with the friends and Elihu, Job acknowledges a number of times his confusion and his lack of ability to explain what is going on. This This integrity to admit the limits of his knowledge is clearly a good and God-approved thing, and yet something that we don't strive for. Job's final words push us in this direction too, contrasting his prior having heard of God with his new experience of seeing God, a poetic imaging of the closer relationship that's resulted out of the terrible things that have happened to Job. It seems that the three friends never got past truths about God, whereas Job pressed on to know God as he actually is. It's probably the best explanation that we can come up with, Yet, one nevertheless that we'll have to hold on to loosely because it's actually not even the focus of this passage. Rather, what the passage emphasises is that even when God is justly angry, he's right to be angry with the friends because they've spoken what's not true, yet at the same time, he is simultaneously merciful. The three friends in God's evaluation have spoken what is folly, which is not evidence that they had a lower IQ than Job or that they hadn't done enough research before they spoke. In the Bible, folly is the opposite of wisdom. While their conclusions are inadequate, more than that, their foolish speeches have actually made them guilty of sin, which is a further, even stronger warning that how we talk about God is not merely theoretical debate. He cares and he holds us accountable for what we say. And yet amazingly, even though the friends have stated untruths about God, God chooses not to punish them. This is how the highest judge of the universe acts. He is merciful. This is how we're supposed to notice that he's like this. This is what God is at all times. But notice also how His surprising mercy is received through surprising means. Even though God is in the act of talking with Eliphaz, he could just give him mercy there straight away. Mercy isn't automatically or directly given. Instead, God provides it through a mediator. Job is tasked with performing his role as a priest on their behalf, offering the sacrifice that they bring. Back in chapter 1, God had, uh, sorry, Job had performed sacrifices on behalf of his children, just in case they might have sinned. But now God gives Job the role of being a priest on behalf of three friends who've relentlessly attacked Job for 27 chapters, which I think seems to us just a little bit unfair. Throughout the debate, Job spoke of his longing for an intermediary, someone who would stand between him and God so that they could actually talk. But it is Job himself who is tasked with acting as the go-between for three men who didn't think they even needed an intermediary. While the passage doesn't give us a hint as to how Job felt as he was asked to perform this role, there is absolutely no doubt that it would have been extremely difficult. And yet, the text tells us Job does pray for them, verse 9. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. What is crystal clear from these first couple of verses is that when he judges, God is merciful. This is the foundational truth that we must always hang on to and it must always be included whenever we talk of God's judgment. Now, I also think that there is a hint that we are supposed to pick up on here that restoration to a merciful God also leads to restoration with people with whom we are in conflict. God's using of Job as the mediator warns us that even if people have offended us and hurt us while we've been experiencing pain, that is not an excuse for us to withhold forgiveness from them. As God is merciful, so we are supposed to be merciful too. Now Jesus himself further develops this idea in his model prayer that he taught his disciples to pray that we looked at last term. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And having taught it, Jesus also modelled it for us on the cross. When he prayed, Father, forgive them, they, they don't know what they're doing. Forgiving others who have hurt us is, is not some theoretical ideal for the super spiritual. This is bread and butter, everyday action for all who claim to be God's people which I think clears up what should have been the desire the whole time throughout the debate. As far as God is concerned, the goal is not to win, but for both sides to actually be reconciled. Imagine that applied within the church, in our interaction with those who are outside of the church, that rather than winning debates, we did everything in our power to win people. What would it look like? Now, clearly this doesn't allow for us to be satisfied with anything less than truth. Remember what the friends are judged for. But to use truth to condemn others, to use our knowledge or experience to, to make others bend to our way of seeing things, is far more about us than it is about defending truth. The ending of the book of Job teaches us that God is a merciful judge and therefore we must be merciful too. The conclusion then moves on to our second point, Job's restoration. In verse 10, it's noted that it is only after Job has prayed for his friends, and they're restored to God, that Job is then made prosperous again. The initial description is simply that he got twice as much as he had in the beginning. Verse 12 is going to go on in detail of what that entailed, but it's easy in our culture to overlook what is said first in verse 11. So turn to that in your Bible if you've got it open there. Verse 11, all his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. When Job was in the middle of his suffering, he no doubt missed the comforts that his wealth had brought him. But while he was sitting in the ash heap, scratching himself with a piece of broken pottery, the thing that he longed for most of all was not for more money, a softer bed or an overseas vacation. What he wanted more than anything else was restoration of his relationship with God and with others. And so before we get to the details of the restoration of his property and possessions, Notice the priority is placed on the restoration of his relationships. This is first shown in Job's extended family appearing on the scene. How many brothers and sisters did he have? Well, we're not told. But we are told that they and everyone who had ever known Job came and had a party at Job's house. The size of the celebration is even more spectacular than the parties that Job's kids held back in chapter 1. It's not clear from chapter 1 whether Job even attended those parties, but now he is the host, the one in whose honour this party is being held. The party is at his house, meaning that he's back in society and he's recognised again as the head of this household. During the debate, even his slaves had shunned him. But now everyone wants to be not just seen with Job, but connected to Job. Notice also that everyone comforted and consoled him, verse 11. Very slightly different wording of the very thing that the three friends set out to do 40 chapters ago. He finally gets some comfort and consolation. Now, in addition, everyone gives Job a piece of silver and a gold ring. And while that may just be a very, very fancy present, it's likely that again it has further symbolic meaning. In Genesis, Pharaoh gives his ring to Joseph. And in Esther, the king gives first Haman and later Mordecai his ring. In both cases, it's a symbol of honour and authority to rule. Are Job's friends and relatives acknowledging Job's right to rule over them as some kind of king? Was it the way in Job's culture of bending the knee before someone who's super-honoured? Now, even if I'm reading a bit too much into this because of what I'm studying, uh, it certainly is a way of showing that they do greatly respect Job again. Job's restoration started back in chapter 38 with God's speeches that, that clarified and corrected how Job was supposed to relate with God. In this final section, we see that to bring about his complete restoration, Job also has to be restored to his friends and his society. If we think of God's salvation as just between us and God in the vertical, we've missed a very important part of God's provision. The ending of Job shows that restoration is first in the vertical between us and God, but it leads on to the horizontal to restoration with others. The final focus takes us back to the beginning with our third and final point God's blessing. In verses 12 to 15, the details of Job's double blessing are made explicit. 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of ox and 1,000 donkeys. Double, exactly double the amount that he owned back in chapter 1. But the numbers are not simply for stock taking purposes. They are again symbolic. Multiples of 3, 7, and 10 are used in the Bible to indicate completeness. Now, I think that means most of us read it and automatically think that that Mr. Complete from chapter one has now become Mr. Uber-wealthy. Job is twice as rich as he originally was, so surely now he can take it easy, perhaps even head into early retirement. But while Job is very well off again, for the original readers, Job's affluence was probably considered a good thing for very different reasons to why we think it's good. As people in an individualist society, a capitalist society, we intuitively associate wealth with freedom and luxury. Whereas the first readers of Job would have associated wealth with a privilege that comes with a responsibility. Already in the debate, Job has claimed that no one went in need if they came to him and asked him for help. He understood that His role was as a manager of God's blessing with the task of using them for other people's benefit. Now that previously already significant ability to look after the poor and the widow has been expanded. Double the possessions means double the ability to look after double the community. Job has been blessed. That is, according to the Bible, he's been given the attitude, the ability, and the resources to care for even more people which for Job is not an obligation that's forced upon him against his wishes. It is a sign that God approves how he treats others. I think that far too often, selfishness warps our understanding of what God's blessing is. God's blessing is is assumed to mean that I will have an easier life, more comfort, more luxury, more for me. But blessing is intended by God to travel through me to we, or even better, through us, out to all. A big part of the purpose of the book of Job is to show that Job worships God for who he is, not for what he can get from God. Job's double blessing, therefore, is not a reward for from God because he did such a good job of patiently persevering but because Job has demonstrated that he understands the purpose of God's blessing. Satan had accused Job of worshipping God for what Job can get for himself. Having proved that is not the case, God now graciously blesses Job with even more, knowing that Job is going to do the right thing with the blessing. And so again, there is an implicit warning that, that we need to check our motivations here. Are we excited by by how much loot Job gets, concluding that if we also patiently put up with suffering, God's guaranteed to shower financial blessing upon us? If we ever find ourselves thinking like that, we have misunderstood that we are supposed to be pipes through which God's blessing flows to others. And instead we've become like an ugly, blocked-up sink. God is probably not going to pour out more blessing on us is more likely to send around a plumber to unblock the pipe. Now, the final way the epilogue refers to God's blessing is by speaking of Job's new children. As he had back in chapter 1, Job is again blessed with seven sons and three daughters, presumably with his original wife. As the only thing that is not explicitly doubled... There is a hint that Job's first ten children continue to exist, but Job will only see them after his own death. The difference now is that the three daughters' names are recorded, and an extravagance in Job's culture that would have been considered exceptionally unusual. There is actually only one other case in the whole of the Old Testament where daughters receive an inheritance, and in that family as a man named had, he had no sons at all. The point is that Job is so blessed that he can pass on to the next generation the capacity to continue being a blessing to others. Each of his sons and his three beautiful daughters, Jemima, Kaziah, and Keren-Hapuk, are going to be a chip off the old block, using what they have been blessed with to continue being a blessing to others. And so the book ends with a very intentional echoing of the death of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Joseph instead of Jacob. The patriarchs served as a model that Israel to learn from. This was who they were as a nation. Be like Israel. And in a very similar way, Job serves as a model that we are to learn from. Be like Job. We learn from Job that God is worthy of our worship, not because of what he gives us, but because of who he is, which means that ultimately the book of Job is not about Job or his suffering, but about a glorious God who created and controls everything that takes place. He alone is worthy of all our worship. He's a merciful judge. The book helps us to understand God's gracious blessing that, that he pours out on us with the intent that we will pass it on to others. It helps us to understand how we as creatures are supposed to interact and relate with each other. Our relatively simple goal as we started this series seven weeks ago was that everyone would read the whole of the book of Job. My hope now is that you have been encouraged to see that there is so much more to the book then answering the question, why do good people suffer? While Job is complicated and dark in places, it doesn't answer all of our questions, yet it does give us a unique insight into God. It prepares us in so many ways for who Jesus is and what he does. It challenges wrong perceptions and and behaviours, particularly about how we comfort others in their suffering. It As a book is the wisdom that chapter 28 itself refers to, that that we must seek it out. And yet at the same time, we've got to depend on God who will reveal it to us. Job is not easy to understand, and it is very, very unlikely that you'll go home feeling warm and fuzzy for the coming week. But it points us towards something that's so much more valuable than earthly riches or fleeting happiness. As I reflect on the book of Job and the many Christian friends that I have had the opportunity to observe going through suffering, I have had the privilege of seeing Job-like faith lived out before my eyes. Those who fought and are fighting cancer and childlessness with an ongoing trust in a good God. My friend and their spouses who had to deal with motor neuron disease and the death that did come far, far too soon. The friends whose daughter was born with a a genetic condition and she died just minutes after her birth. The friend who's ended up in a wheelchair and chooses to perpetually praise God rather than curse God. None of their lives have been easy and most people would probably not consider them to be blessed. Happily ever after. What a load of rubbish. But while their lives are not the fairy tale according to our world's definition clearly they know a secret that gives them joy in the midst of their suffering and so i'm challenged by them and by job to to stop chasing after lesser treasures and seek after the only treasure that lasts a treasure so valuable that i don't need everything to work out perfectly in order to have joy The book of Job ultimately points us to one who suffers, not because he did anything wrong, but because he was perfect. And as Job acted as a mediator capable of restoring friends who had attacked him, Jesus is our mediator who has paid a sacrifice so much greater than bulls and rams for us when we were still actively opposed to him. He was sacrificed to pay the price for our folly that is a treasure that's beyond compare my prayer is that whether you've already read the book of job yet or not it will become a book that we all keep going back to to hear god speak to us one in which we meet the god worthy of all our praise a god who judges mercifully he restores and he blesses let's talk to him now God, we do thank you for the book of Job. We thank you for these uh, last couple of months that you have given us the privilege of spending time in a book that's not easy or comfortable, uh, that takes us in places that we don't necessarily want to go. And yet by going there, we learn things, good things about you. We learn things about ourselves that we need to know. And we see that in these things, there is a mystery uh, that so contradicts the world and what it thinks is most important and shows us that there's something so much more valuable. We thank you for the book and its preparation of us so that we would understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Help us to turn from folly and chase after wisdom. Let's chase after, enable us to chase after Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.